Welcome. You're listening to the Voice of Vedanta podcast from the Vedanta Society of Southern California. Visit us on the web at vedanta.org. Good morning. The song that we just heard pretty much says it all. In me alone is peace. In today's world, it seems like there is no peace. We are bombarded at every turn with all of the things that are disrupting peace in the world. Bombings, terrorist attack, um, religions fighting religions. Everything that we see on the news says chaos, disturbance, definitely not peace. It's the reoccurring theme of all the news reports. And if it's not man-made, we have floods, we have tornadoes, we have fires. We'll go into nature-made. But everything is disturbing our peace of mind. We are kept in a state of constant anxiety of what could happen next. And we have to be aware of what could happen next. Is peace possible in the external world? Is it possible? I know that we all dream of a time when there will be an idyllic situation and we will sit in a garden of Eden where everything is peaceful. But is it possible? Something we're going to look at today. We don't have it yet. We definitely don't have it yet, because right now we have national unrest, racial unrest, civil unrest, religious unrest, and climate change, which is causing all of us discomfort and unrest. But what's the thing that we crave most in our lives? Don't we all crave a place of peace, happiness, and contentment? We go on vacation to try and get away from the daily turmoil that we're encountering, our job, which makes us feel put upon. Or we live in a city, but as soon as we have time, we want to get into nature. So we're all unconsciously or consciously seeking that peace for ourselves. I hope that you will help me discuss this today. And I will start with, many people have asked, well, what brought you to Vedanta? The world that I encountered when I found Vedanta was the Vietnam War, civil liberties, women's lib, all kinds of civil protest. That's the world I was living in. In 1964, I was in Hawaii, and the soldiers were just coming from Vietnam for R&R and, like, spooked. Wouldn't talk about anything. Then I came here and it was protesting constantly because of the war. Well, six of us got in a Volkswagen bus and decided to come to California. We were living in Washington. It's a little rainy up there. And Hawaii had shown me that there is sunshine in the world, and I would look for it. So we came down to Santa Barbara specifically to see a friend of one of our friends who was in the bus, he was the only one who was consciously seeking something in life, consciously seeking religion, consciously seeking some kind of philosophy. 
the rest of us were along for the ride. We thought we'd be on a vacay in Southern California. We arrived in Santa Barbara, and his friend lived right on the corner of Ladera in Hidden Valley. She had lived in the convent here through her high school years and a few years after. So we arrived, kind of got, you know, dusted off. And the first thing she said was, do you want to meet my teacher? Well, five of us had no idea what she was talking about. I mean, not the vaguest. And he immediately said, yes. So she brought us up here to the convent. And here we walked into the convent living room, unannounced, completely unannounced, just walked in. And here was this nice little, and I mean little, five, four, not very large man, sitting in the living room with his feet up on the ottoman and reading the newspaper. Okay. And this was her teacher, Swami Prabhavananda. And we all walked in. I still to this day don't know exactly what we talked about, but I know it wasn't philosophy, and I know it wasn't religion. He just kind of tried to make us feel comfortable, made us feel as if we were the very people he had been waiting in the living room for that afternoon, that we were special to him. We talked for about probably half an hour and just left. Okay, but for myself, as I left that living room, I thought, wow, I want what he has. I don't know what he has. And can everyone get it? And how do you get it? And what can you do? Because in the midst of all of the world that was going around, the way the political situation was, the way the social situation was, everything... He just sat there as if he had all the time in the world, was completely happy, wanted nothing, and perfectly calm and peaceful. And I thought, that's what we want. Not, you know, going out and raising banners and having fights. That was my state of mind, okay? So it took about six months and I moved down here thinking, well, okay, I will listen to him. I'm still not ready for religion quite. Not ready for religion. But anyway, so we moved down here and continued to come up to the temple and found out, as he said, everyone can attain that kind of peace. Everyone could have what he had. It was not something that was unattainable. It was something that every single person in the world could attain if they wanted it. And he told us, of course, that it was nothing that was outside of ourselves. It was already who we were. It is your divine nature. It is that interior being, what Vedantists call the Atman, that is what we are all seeking. And we're so busy looking outside that we remain distracted. But all we have to do, really, is he said, open your eyes and look inside. Or close your eyes and look inside. <laughs> and how do you do it? Well, he actually wrote a book on it. It's called How to Know God. It's the Yoga Aphorisms of Patanjali. This is how to attain inner peace. 
inner knowledge, self-knowledge, which is what, if you really look at everything in your life, that is what you are seeking everywhere. We want love. Okay, where do we look for love? We look all over the place. We look to other people. We look to organizations. We look to animals. We look to everything. We want peace, but we're really restless. And how are we going to find peace when we're restless? There was a great Buddhist book title called Wherever You Go, There You Are. And I think we really do encounter that when we try and change our environment, go to a new place and be a new person. Mm -mm, You're the same old person, unless you do something interiorly. So I'm going to read a description of how most of our minds are, because I thought it was kind of funny. It's in the book, How to Know God. And he's talking about how the most people's minds, we think we're quite logical and we think we're quite organized. We think we know what we're doing. He said, most of the time our mind is in a, a reverie of going around in circles and out and around. We repeat in our minds the name of a friend, an enemy, the name of an anxiety, the name of a desired object. We walk into a place and we say, hmm, that time that I saw Kennedy, hmm, in love with the night mysterious? Uh Uh-oh, Jimmy's going to get my job. So-and-so says I'm too fat. So-and-so says I'm not doing my job right. And this is basically how our minds go. Probably as you walked into the temple, you thought, oh, it's kind of dark as you come in straight out of the door. Well, gee, it's a pretty day out there. I wonder where I'm going to sit. Is it going to be too cold in here? Is it going to be too hot? Um, Are they going to have the fan on? Or am I going to sit there and have to go? (laughs) And that is the state of our mind. The way to achieve this peace and calmness is to control the mind to take a hold of it and learn to concentrate and to think of one thing. Now, we all do this. We have to do it in our lives. If you have achieved any success in any field, anything, if you've become an athlete, if you have been good in business, if you're an artist, to achieve anything, you have to have concentration. You have to love what you're concentrating on. And actually, in many, many cases, time will disappear. You're not aware of time. And you are completely and one-pointedly concentrated on that that you find enjoyable, fascinating, that thing that you love. If we direct that concentration to the infinite, to God, to whatever you want to call it, then it never disappoints us. We cannot be disappointed because when we concentrate on the infinite, there is no end. You will have everlasting love. You will have everlasting fulfillment. You will have eternal joy. If we put that concentration on the ephemeral things of this world, they end. Your pet dies, your spouse dies, the job ends. 
these things have a beginning and an end, as our bodies do, a beginning and an end. Our eternal spirit has no beginning and no end. And that's what we are trying to identify with, to feel that peace every day in our lives. And how do we do it? Okay, once again in the How to Know God, the Yoga Aphorisms of Patanjali, which is basically a, well, I would like to say, how to achieve immortality for dummies. I mean, it is literally step by step. And if you read it, you will see how it's step by step. First of all, you can attain that concentration by thinking of one truth. Just one. You don't have to divide your mind. You don't have to think of, you know, 50 things at once. We, we make a great deal out of multitasking. Well, guess what? We're just scattering our mind. We're not really multitasking. You really are only thinking of one of those things at a time, serially. You're not thinking of four things at once. And when you multitask, and I have many times, because there's a lot to do, you don't do anything quite as well as if you just got one job done and went on to the next one. So, potentially, first thing, he says, concentrate the mind on one truth. Well, that is extremely difficult. I imagine if everyone closed their eyes right now and tried to think an unbroken thought I'll time you for one minute. Close your eyes and think of one thing for one minute. Start. Okay. A minute's a long time, isn't it? Now, how many of you could actually think one unbroken thought? Most of us suddenly, you know, oh, oh golly, my knee itches. There's a deer fly buzzing around my head. And all I want to do is go. <laughs> Most of us, if we truly look at our minds, find it either wanders here or there, doesn't maintain that one focus. And what are the things that get in the way of this? Well, he has a, a list that really makes you go, really, do I do all that? Okay, illness can do it because you're not feeling well. Parts of your body hurt and your mind goes to where the pain is. I'm an expert at that right now. Just had a knee replaced and let me tell you, Four weeks of, oh, it's my knee. Totally identified with the knee. Not so much now, it's getting better. Mental laziness. Just plain not grabbing your mind. Letting it free float. That's not concentration. Free floating is not concentration. A lack of enthusiasm. Oh, this is, how much longer do I have to do it? This one's the one that I love, sloth. Somehow when you see sloth, you know, sloth, ooh. Craving for sense pleasures, and that we're all made to do that. That's part of our humanity. That's part of inhabiting a human body. Our bodies and that part of us crave sense pleasures. We want good food, we want nice weather, we want you know, to feel good. We crave it. The other one that gets in the way is false perception. How many of us have gone going over a, an, a list of what has happened today? And you go, why me? Why did it happen to me? Why? Why? Or, ugh, 
poor me. I mean, this shouldn't be happening. And we do that. And we can all get there. I know we can, because I, I know I certainly can. I don't think I'm unique. But most of the time, those are false perceptions. It's not happening to you. It's just happening. And we're attaching to it. And taking it on as a personal thing. I mean, say you run into someone and they, they snap at you. They say, what are you doing about it? Okay, it's not you. It's their mood. But a normal human reaction which disturbs our peace of mind is to react in anger back. If we were truly identified with our divine self, we would know that's one of their moods. That's not my mood. It's like when we can make a decision in our life to look at things. I was talking to someone the other day. We make a decision in our life to trust people or to not trust people. Or we can make a decision to what we consider to be rational, to use common sense, evaluate and decide whether to trust or not trust. What, and this you have to think of it, each individual, what brings you closer to your divine self? Which choice? Because that's all we're doing in our lives is making choices to become closer to our divinity with every single thing we do every day. You have to stop and think. You can't just go into you know, immediate reaction, but you have to think, is this going to lead me towards who I know I am and want to manifest, or am I going to regret this? And wonder if I have hurt someone, wonder if I've let my tongue get away from me. But we have to do that. And this is an active choice that we make in our day. And I mean, sure, sometimes we make the wrong choice. Mistakes are nothing but mistakes. They're not irrevocable sins that we have committed. They're mistakes. And we're all going to make them. And a mistake is a mistake. Is If we learn from it, it's good we made it. If we don't learn from it, oh, man, you're going to have to do it again and again and again until you do learn from it. And it gets really tiresome. But mostly, this world can be a place of pure pleasure or a place of pure pain. And it's really in the choices we make and how we behave every day and how we decide to see the world. If everything is divine, if we believe that there is only one divinity, and we are all manifestations of that divinity, then everything else in the world is also a manifestation of that divinity. If we could see that, what would we have to fear? What would we have to be disappointed about? What would we have to try to change? And I think the only way we can honestly see that and to feel that kind of peace is to find it in ourself first. Now, that is often difficult. That's why we have avatars. 
we have Jesus, we have Ramakrishna, we have Buddha, we have people who can show us how to do it. Examples. If we didn't happen to live in the period when they lived, then we have saints and holy people who are have achieved that kind of peace and serenity and pure joy where they identify with their Atman most of the time. They still interact in the world, but we can see how they do it. And some of us need that visual input and actual experience. Some people can read and do it through their minds. I'm not one of them. I can read all the books in the world and I think, that's really nice. And it, But until I see it in practice, somehow it doesn't it just stays in my head. It doesn't enter my life. So I think that's why why people go to see Thich Nhat Hanh, Dalai Lama, some of the swamis in our order. They come to have that what we call darshan and see what holiness is, how it manifests. And believe me, it has every manifestation imaginable. They are not out of a cookie cutter at all. Every one of them is unique and different. I mean, there was a wonderful saying. One of our Buddhist friends said, someone asked the Dalai Lama, well, what's the quick way to God realization? He says, no quick, no easy. And it's true. No quick, no easy. (laughs) It's a lot of hard work. (laughs) But when you do it, then there's that bubbling joy in all of them, that joy that you immediately feel. I mean, they're doing outrageous things, outrageous things. Swami Swahananda, who was the head of the center who passed away in 2012, I was told about one of his last talks in Hollywood. I was not there, but evidently we had a visiting Swami, young one who had just come from India, and he was to give a talk in the evening. And Swami Sarvadevananda was there, and Swami Swahananda was there. Swami Swahananda was sitting there with his big neck brace on, slept through the entire thing in the front row. The younger Swami was nervous and finished early. Swami Sarvadevananda got up, and he said, Well, you haven't used up the time, so I guess I'm going to have to finish off this talk. And he gave a talk, and finally Swami Swahananda surfaced, and he said, Well, since I've had to sit through all of this, and I haven't heard anything, I've been sound asleep, but I'm going to have to say something. So he got up, and he was 91 or 2 by this time. Congestive heart failure, you know, kidney failure, everything was going on, and he was still teaching Vedana. He says, well, I mostly watch TV these days. It was true, but he watched Indian epics like the Mahabharata, which tell all of the highest truths from the Vedas and the Upanishads. And I like uh, Perry Mason, too. And if you think about this, it was points of the law where you debated good and evil. And I got to thinking about it, because by that time, everyone in the congregation was laughing, like, really, you're saying this? (laughs) But he had nothing to be ashamed of or to be or to try and hide. He did watch television. He had it on in his room. I won't say he was watching it. He often had his eyes closed. He hid all of the spirituality that he had. 
He did not wear it on his sleeve for everyone to see. But he got up and did japam and meditated for two and three hours in the middle of the night for all of his devotees, for all of his disciples. He watched television because then anyone could walk into his room, sit down, and be with him. And because the television was going, he didn't have to expend energy that he really, physical energy, that he did not have to talk to them. But he wanted them to be with him. So, you know, holiness does not follow a certain regime. It is not if you have, let's see, if you are this, 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 you always have your beads going, you wear them so everyone can see them, you have your robes on. This does not define holiness. Holiness is not an external thing either. Holiness is realization. And often there are so many people in the world who are not in positions of religion who have achieved it. And we don't know them. We don't recognize them necessarily. You'll see them occasionally, and they're those people who maintain calm in the midst of everything. They're calm, they're happy, they don't get flustered, they're always there to help you. You've met them. They're out there. They don't have a big sign on their head that says, Saint. So how, do, how can we train our minds, though, to get this calmness? One of the easiest ways is, they say, concentrate on one truth. This is going to sound entirely simplistic, and people who are deeply philosophical and intellectual often say, Really? Repeating the name of God. That's it. Repeat the name of God or a mantra every day and see what it does for you. Now, Swami Prabhavananda used to say, well, if you don't think that will do good, just try repeating war, war, war 10,000 times a day and see how you feel at the end of the day saying war. It's an experiment. You can all try it. And then repeat the name of your chosen ideal, Jesus, like the Jesus prayer, Lord Jesus, have mercy on me. Um, a mantra, O Mani Padme Hum, repeat those, one of them, just one of them, 10,000 times a day. 10,000 times sounds a lot, but it doesn't take that long. It's three and a half hours. And see how you feel. See what your mood is. In Vedanta, there is nothing that you have to believe. It is an open experiment for you to delve into to see if you can experience and do experience your divine nature. Now, it doesn't mean you're going to be happy all the time. Well, you'll have joy inside. Things are still going to happen out here. And you will experience sorrow, anger, but it doesn't go deep. It's like on the surface of your mind. It's not in your soul. When we have someone very dear to us who dies, we can be devastated because we think they're gone forever. If you have found or even touched the Atman inside, you know that they're not gone, that they are eternal. And yes, you feel the loss of their physical presence, 
but you're not devastated forever and ever. You have a certain equanimity and calmness that is your nature by then. So in Vedanta, we believe part of our path, and this is not everyone's. We do not try and change anyone. You do not have to become a Vedantist. If you have a religion already, follow that to its very core. We have many people who follow Buddhism here or Christianity. We do feel that every path leads to exactly the same goal, the unity and divinity of oneness. We're all going to get to the same top of the mountain eventually. And we take different paths. The thing we don't encourage is jumping from path to path where you just go sideways up the mountain and you don't go... We do like think it's better to go up the mountain rather than checking all around and going around it. You'll get there eventually, but it'll take a long time. So find a mantra or a God saying that appeals to you if you do not believe in having a teacher in the human body. Eknathi Shwaran has written a book called the Mantra Handbook. And he, he came from a tradition in South India where his grandmother was his guru. And he suggests you can pick your own mantra. I don't happen to prescribe to that philosophy. I think that mantras that are handed down directly from realized souls have a little more power to them. So I believe in a guru system, which is why I'm here and not somewhere else. But saying any kind of a prayer over and over again until you find a guru, if you want one, will change your whole mindset. There's an excellent Christian book called The Way of the Pilgrim, and it's a starrett in Russia who goes around the world simply repeating, Lord Jesus Christ, have mercy upon me. He does it all day long everywhere he goes. And, of course, it achieves enlightenment. The Buddhist mantra of Om Mani Padme Hum, excellent. You know, I mean, they all are leading to the same calm peace that pervades your entire being. Now, we're not going to try saying war a hundred thousand times, okay? You can if you want to on your own, but I'm not going to. <laughs> that very, very simple practice, which we call japa, will give you that inner peace. It's an odd thing when you've done it for years and years and years, and sometimes it will get like... One of the things you have to watch out for is it gets really mechanical and boring. When you first started, you're enthusiastic, you've got all of this, yes, I'm going to realize God in it next month or tomorrow. Okay, well, maybe not that fast. And so it can get boring, it can get mechanical, your mind can start wandering even while you're doing it. And those are the things that you have to watch for. You have to catch yourself if things like that happen and make it stop. Get up and walk around, take a deep breath, break that cycle right away. Or you can even fall asleep while you're doing it. Break that cycle until you become extremely proficient at it, and then it reaches a stage where it kind of revolves constantly in your mind. If you stop thinking about a job or something, it's just kind of going. 
But you have to train your mind. It doesn't want to behave. Your mind really wants to go wandering around. It wants to go to the beach. Oh, let's go to the movies. Um, I wonder what's happening in town today. What are we going to have for lunch? The mind just wanders all over without some kind of check. And that's fine if you're happy. Most of us find it's not enough. And I think that's why you bother to come to the Vedanta Temple on Sunday, because something's missing. <laughs> and it's our inner being that we're not in touch with. That's what's missing in our lives. If we could touch that Atman, then we would look no further. We've had nothing to look for. Nothing at all. Now, I will open this up to questions if you have any. She asked if, Japam, if you can do it all day long throughout your day. And I'm saying to train yourself, it's good to have a special place, a set time, or here in the convent, three set times. First thing in the morning, noon, and in the evening, we have arati, Vesper service here. And to train yourself to sit down at those times and make a concentrated effort to concentrate, do your japam, instills a, a mental discipline. If you go around and say, well, I'll fit it in here or I'll fit it in there, often it doesn't get fit in because the time gets away from you. So it takes real effort to get it started. Now, I don't recommend you do it while you're driving down the freeway. I think it's better if you kind of watch what you're doing. <laughs> yes, of course, if you have, I remember Swami Swahananda also telling me he, he got to traveling in his old age. And I said, well, your plane's, it's an hour and a half late. He says, oh, we're never bored because we can sit in the airport and do Joppa as many hours as we need to. Well, yes, if you're him. <laughs> And Swami Prabhavananda, if he was not actively interacting with people, he was in a constant state of communion with the divine. You know, and then if you walked in, you were the divine arriving. So people felt that. Everyone felt welcome. They all felt like, yes, okay. Same with all of the Swamis. Swami Sarvadevananda, he goes out to everyone. So, to begin with, yeah, set times, set place, a place where you only do spiritual things. So you're not distracted. Doesn't, you know, probably not the same room you've got the TV in. Mm -hmm. The word Java, right? Is, is Java explicitly a word or a phrase, or can it be an image? No, Japa, J-A-P-A, Japa. And it's usually telling your beads. It's like the rosary. And it's repetition of the name of God. If you notice, some people, when they come to meditate, they have beads and they count out the number when they first start. And the good point of having beads is because it also releases a certain amount of physical twitching that can arise when you sit down to meditate. Um, it involves the physical as well as the mental. So that's why beads and that kind of thing are efficacious in doing it.
Any other questions? Yeah. What about saying it in Sanskrit versus English? Well, mine is in Sanskrit. I know the translation. And I believe that many people believe that the Sanskrit itself has a certain, the syllables have a certain power. We do worship here also. And when I first moved in, we were taught in English so we would know what we were doing. Because to go through the external motions without knowing what it means, yeah, when you know the translation, it automatically kind of comes to you after a while. So whatever your language is. With Sanskrit mantras, there are certain words that cannot be translated. Those are called seed words, and they're specific to aspects of God. Every manifestation of God has their own seed word. And om would be considered a seed word for the infinite, I think. The most sacred mantra, om. But then each specific, if you were worshiping Krishna, if you were worshiping Jesus, if you were worshiping the Divine Mother, there would be specific seed words for that aspect. And they have power, just in and of themselves being repeated. Yeah. Yeah, well, she's saying that Hebrew, Sanskrit, some are considered sacred languages. Yes, they are. I personally think every language can be sacred if you direct it to the divine. And our karma has put us in the United States of America speaking English. And so I personally, and this is my own personal feeling, this is not necessarily straight Vedanta, I personally can't think that if we said our mantras in English that it would not reach God, <laughs> to put it that way. I think it has to do with the intent and the devotion and the length of time. I think that Jesus' prayer is a fairly good example, Lord Jesus Christ, have mercy upon me. That's Definitely in English. We all understand what it says. And I don't think it's any less effective than Om Mani Padme Hum. So that's my personal feeling. Please don't quote me and say this is Vedanta, rock bottom Vedanta, okay? <laughs> Was there any other question? Yes. Um, so for those who repeat their mantra during their set time, how would you distinguish the practice of japa? I mean, I get japa in the airport, for example, being different, but if you're going to do japa in a sort of set fixed place, how does that differ, or does it differ from? Well, the japa itself doesn't differ. The thing is, when you sit down in your shrine and do it in a place without distraction, you're more likely to become more concentrated. If you're repeating your mantra in the airport with all the flight announcements and everything that are going on and all the people that are walking by, it's much more difficult to keep your mind concentrated on it. Now, even doing it mechanically will make a difference in your life, but to do it with concentration and attention makes a bigger difference. Does that answer it, Bob? Partially. Partially. I'm doing that. I'm not sure if I'm doing that. 
You're doing japa. No, you're doing japa. You're not doing meditation in the airport. It's straight, just repeat the mantra. When you find yourself getting angry or getting frustrated or getting irritated, take a breath, sit down, and start repeating your mantra. If you can't go to sleep, start repeating it. It will fill spaces and change your mood. It will change your focus, which is the thing that we're trying to do. We're trying to change ourselves, not other people. Uh huh. No, just one mantra. I've known people who have added to it, but um, you have one mantra for your whole life. And as I say, I've had people who have added to it. The mantra just explains it. Is it my word for God? I'm calling forth God, or is it more like a mantra like praying for something in my life? No, your mantra is actually just repeating the name of God with no desire attached. It's getting in touch with your inner divinity. The other praying for things in your life is prayer, petitional prayer, but that is not japa or meditation. I think we should quit now, and then if there are more, if there are more questions, I'll come back in for a little bit, and we'll end with a peace chant. Om Jyo Shantihi Antarikshaam Shantihi Prithivi Shantihi Apa Shantihi Oshadaya Shantihi Vanaspataya Shantihi Vishwedeva Shantihi Brahma Shantihi Sarvam Shantihi Shantireva Shanti Sama Shanti Ridhe Om Shanti Shanti Shantihi Peace is in the heavens, peace is on the earth, peace is in the waters, the herbs, the grass, the trees are all full of peace. The gods are peaceful. Everything in the universe is pervaded by peace. May this eternal, universal peace enter our soul and being. Peace, peace, peace be unto us all. You've been listening to the Voice of Vedanta podcast from the Vedanta Society of Southern California. Thanks for listening.